0: Welcome back to the final lesson in our series, Going Home. We've been going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah right at the end of your Old Testament and historically right at the end of your Old Testament, just right near the end of what we know about the Jews. And they have been in exile in Babylon. Persians conquered the Babylonians and surprisingly allowed some of the Jews to return. and. Rebuild a, a temple, but Jerusalem itself had been completely destroyed. The walls were torn down. Uh, it's in terrible shape. So, when are we? This lesson is during the reign of Artaxerxes. It's going to happen around 444 BC. And our hero, Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to the king, was in a high position of responsibility, but he was a Jew. And so in 444 BC, he worked up the courage to ask Artaxerxes if he could do something about the fate of the Israelites. Well, this is what the Persian Empire looked like at that time. When this happened, Nehemiah tells us he was in the uh, citadel at Susa. That was one of many palaces that Artaxerxes had and Nehemiah would have been with him wherever he went. He would have been the one responsible for making sure the food and the wine for the king was safe, that no one assassinated him by poisoning him. He may very well, in all likelihood in my view, also have been over the palace staff. He was a very responsible position. So he was very trusted and he was very capable. What we've learned about Nehemiah so far is he's also a very godly man, meaning he pursues God, and we see him being one of the most praying men in the Bible. Just through the first few chapters, as he asks the king for permission, and as he goes back to Jerusalem and encourages them all to begin uh, rebuilding the wall, you see him constantly praying. He's not relying on his own skills, although his skills are pretty impressive, You'll see him do some pretty smart things in rebuilding the wall, but he realizes that it's the hand of God that will make the difference between this working and this not working. Artaxerxes was the ruler of the known world. He was the pharaoh of Egypt. He was the king of Persia from India to Greece up into what's modern day Russia. He ruled, uh, just unilaterally ruled that entire area. But because of God's Favor, God's grace, Nehemiah had been allowed and in fact blessed by the king to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So he ends up in this tiny little province. This is what Judea has been reduced to. If you remember, this is 444 BC, so about 500 years earlier under David and Solomon, Israel was in its glory days. And, but this is just a, a nothing portion of what they once were. And God had been prophesying and he'd been sending messengers pleading and warning the people to turn back to God. He had told Moses in centuries past that if you obey me, if you are faithful, it will go well with you. If you are not, you will be scattered amongst the nations. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened to them. And so Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem in this little area of Judea, goes back to a city that's still largely in ruins, doesn't have a city wall around it. And as he begins to rebuild the wall, he meets huge resistance because all of the neighbors around there are enemies of the Jews. So to recap, Nehemiah comes and he says, you see the trouble we are in, speaking to his fellow Jews, Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me. In our last lesson, I mentioned this to you and I'll just briefly mention it again. Not only does he say, look, I came from the king and I have letters and we can have all the temper we need to do this and the king is behind this. And by the way, I was the cupbearer. I was a responsible executive in the king's administration and I know how to organize this and make this happen. All those things are true, but what else does he say? And what is most moving to them? He said, but I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me. He told them a story about how unlikely it was that he could ask the king for a favor and that the king would grant it and that the king would be so supportive of it. And when they realized that, they realized that we have the abilities, the God-given abilities to do it, and God has graciously bestowed his favor on that. When those two things come together, I'm talking about modern times, when you have the gracious hand of God, that God is with us, which is our promise, and we take our God-given talents and abilities, and like Nehemiah, we are willing to hand those abilities over to God. You see it all the time. Uh, In this church, I see so many people that sit in these seats that basically take their skills that they make a living with during the week, and they give those skills to the work of God. That's what Nehemiah did, and when those two things come together, there's nothing that can stop what God intends to accomplish. Well, unfortunately, there are people trying to stop that. Uh, As we go on, he says, let's start building. Now, I'm not gonna read all these names, but I want you to see the detail because there's an important, really important uh, lesson in this. So Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and they rebuilt one of the gates. Now, these are the cream of the crop socially, politically, whatever. This is the priests and the high priests. They officiate over, uh, they they shepherd the people. But in in that kind of, of day, they were also kind of rulers over the people. They were judges over the people. So these are important people in the life of the Jews. And they began to work. They dedicated it, set it doors in place, and then they built a wall for a certain portion. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams, put its doors and bars in place. And they start to list all these different people who are building sections of the wall. I mean, when I said Nehemiah was really pretty capable, he realizes, you know what? We're gonna divide and conquer this thing. We got all this rubble and debris, and we don't necessarily need to go quarry the stones. We just need to put it all back in place. It's a lot of hard work. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna divide up into groups and we're going to do this whole wall at one time. In other words, we're gonna put different work groups. And as you look through these people, you see you've got high priests, you've got merchants, you've got farmers, you've got people coming from other towns around there uh, to, to do it. For example, in verse five, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. Tekoa is a few miles away, it's a village outside. And so they're bringing a lot of people together uh, to get this done. And one of the things I'd point out on this is it raises an interesting point. And that is, first of all, it's a tribute to Nehemiah to get this kind of level of effort and get it organized and get it going. But it's really amazing. You know what you don't see in this account? What you don't see in this account is Well, and then Eliashib the priest said, I'm sorry, we can't work on Saturdays. And so, you know, maybe you're giving us too much of the wall to do. And the men of Tekoa said, look, we've got flocks and we've got farms. We can give you two days a week. And you know, what's not in here is all the divisiveness that happens in almost any human endeavor. And that's because people are very diverse. And these people are diverse. They're diverse in their interests. They're diverse in their uh, livelihood and their station in life. They certainly are diverse in socioeconomic status. There's a lot of diversity in this. That's a big topic at our time. And I think there's a lesson here. We celebrate diversity. There's nothing wrong with celebrating diversity. Here's the catch, is that we also want unity. And so far in our culture, this is my contention to you, and I'm willing to argue this, just look at the facts. So far in our culture, we have yet to be able to figure out how to find unity in our diversity. Diversity is a fact, needs to be acknowledged in, in so many ways. I'm just talking about the story of Nehemiah with the socioeconomic and the geographic and stations of life, and there's so much diversity here. And so what is Nehemiah really doing? He's saying, I need to somehow unify these people our culture is just reading the newspaper will convince you we have not solved this problem we can't find anything to unify our diverse population the lesson for nehemiah is simply this and the lesson for christians and this is where i think we'd have good news for the world and i don't mean good news uh, beyond the gospel this is part of the gospel here's how christians find unity even in racial and national and socioeconomic diversity, uh, you know, through all the world. There are Christians everywhere in the world of every station in life. What unifies them? What unifies them is being committed to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and then let me move on a little, and being about his work in the world. In other words we trust in God and we as Ephesians 2 8 says we are about the good works that he has prepared ahead of time for us to go do we are about God's business in the world well that involves everything from the great commission to go into all the world and Uh, make disciples of all the nations and teach them to obey all my commands and baptize them. It also talks about bringing justice to the world is let's, let's speak God's justice and God's compassion and God's forgiveness for the marginalized in the world. All of these things are God's business in the world that we're called to be about. I would argue that's what unites us in the midst of incredible diversity as followers of Christ in the world, we are unified around being the person of Jesus Christ, of course, but then being about God's business in the world. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He says, look, this is God's business. This is God's will for us. He said he would bring us from the scattered nations and bring us back here, and he does, by the way, and we need to build this wall. And we have the temple, we have the wall, we will re-inhabit Jerusalem, and that is what God wants done. So let's let nothing deter us. And so the unifying force, which our world can't find one, and we have the most powerful unifying force in all of history and all of time, the person of Jesus Christ and being about his business in the world. I love this uh, lesson of Nehemiah because if you look at it, I know it's easy to read the Bible and go, well, yeah, so they all got together and built the wall. Man, just stop and think about this for a minute. I mean, this is monumental. Let me put it this way. Some of you have homeowners associations. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna make my point here, right? And that is, have you ever been in a homeowners association and proposed that you do a project like, hey, let's build a wall around this neighborhood or hey, let's you know, put flowers everywhere where you didn't have just unbelievable uh, differences of opinion and second guessing and hard feelings i mean i picked homeowners associations because they are legendary for being almost impossible to get everybody together to do something well you see my point my point is this is not as easy as it sounds just reading the scripture and yet they pull as one person for the work of God. And there's a powerful lesson for us about what is the most powerful unifying force in all of history and in all of the world. Well, he goes on and he says, above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. So what they've done is they've kind of fixed up some places to live, because everything's been burned down and they're living throughout this little area that I showed you of Jerusalem. And next to them, Zadok made repairs in front of his house and next to him made repairs, next to him made repairs in front of his living quarters or his house. This is one where you just have to admire Nehemiah. He doesn't get people together and randomly say, okay, you live in Northeast Oklahoma City, wants you to help build the wall in Southwest Oklahoma City. I'm not saying they wouldn't do it. I'm just saying a little common sense is uh, pretty impressive and Nehemiah is a great administrator. And he says, look, they'll work harder to build the wall that's protecting their immediate neighborhood. And so, by the way, some of the best urban renewal uh, and city beautification and just reviving metropolitan areas happens, you see this happen a lot, and I commend it, happens neighborhood by neighborhood because people will work harder for their neighborhood. It's just a fact of human Uh, human nature. And so Nehemiah taps into that. And so it's really interesting to see that they're all pulling together, but they're building the wall by their house. When Sanballat, back to the uh, opponents, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry. Now he's the governor of Samaria. So Samaria is right to the north of Judea. Samaria is way more powerful. I mean, you got 43,000 Jews that came back to Jerusalem, Samaria is uh, just a very pagan area. And by that, I mean, they're not Jews. They're just a lot of people from all over the world, but they're very well politically uh, set up. And so you get Sanballat, who is the governor of that area. He became angry and was incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, the Jews don't have an army, okay, but Samaria has an army. And in the presence of the army says, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, uh, I'll show you where that is in just a second, said, what are they building? Even if a fox climbed on it, he would break their wall down. So you first get, and by the way, this is the way persecution happens. You first get ridicule, like, I don't like you people, I don't know what you're doing, I don't agree with what you believe, and you guys are ridiculous. And that's what they're doing, they're ridiculing him. In uh, Hebrew, actually Yiddish, but there's this word called chutzpah. And chutzpah is an idea that does not exactly translate to English very well, but chutzpah means you've got a lot of guts, or you've got a lot of nerve, you've got an attitude, if you will. This is where you see Nehemiah, God's praying man, has some chutzpah. Listen to this prayer. He said, hear us, God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults into the face of the builders. Now, this is interesting. You may or may not agree with this prayer. It's called an imprecatory prayer. We don't pray very many imprecatory prayers. There are a lot of them in the Old Testament. And it basically said, God, you see that? You see this? You hearing this? He says, Lord, make sure you remember this because they are opposing you, your people, and your work. Now, we don't pray many (laughs) imprecatory prayers, meaning God fine with me if you smite those people. We don't do that very much, but what's important to me here is not so much the content of the prayer, but instead of saying, hey, these guys are ridiculing us. Let's all get our swords. Let's get ourselves an army and let's go teach them a lesson. Instead, what does he do? As what he always does. He prays to God and said, God, uh, you alone can deal with this the way you choose to deal with it. Personally, I'd smite them, but you do what you want. In the meantime, we're going to be about your business. Christians are not vindictive people. We recognize when those things happen, but we need to turn to God and say, God, please deal with this. In the meantime, we're gonna be about your business. And that's what Nehemiah does. They don't stop building this wall. So let me remind you where we're at, historically, Sanballat was uh, is known from Josephus, who's a historian from the first century, but also from some papyri that were found right around this time that mention him. This is all outside the Bible that mention him as the governor or the satrap, but the governor of that area. He would have been in charge of the army, and then of course the Ammonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and then Geshem, who isn't mentioned here yet, but he has been is king of Arabic peoples here. And the three of them combine to stop the Jews from rebuilding their nation, rebuilding their people, and in this specific case, rebuilding their wall. I mean, I cannot help but think of drawing parallels to what the Jews call the War of Independence. If you remember after World War II, and so 1947, UN says that this area in Israel Uh, is going to be a Jewish homeland. And on the next day, five Arab armies invaded them. And so all I'm trying to say is, is that this is so reminiscent to me of that. I mean, when I talk to my Jewish friends there, they say, whether they're terribly religious Jews or not religious Jews, they say this, only God, could have allowed us to survive, and not only survive, to win that war and maintain our little nation. They didn't have an army. It's the same thing here. Everybody around them has an army. They don't even have an army. That was true right after World War II as well. And so today they would say that only God could have done that. And that's exactly what you see happening here. So let's see how this plays out with the enemies all around them. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod, this is literally a whole circle around them, heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that we were actually rebuilding it. They were angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, The people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. I mean, think about this, this is really overwhelming. And there are times in your life, there are times in, as you go about God's business in the world, it'll seem like, God, are you really in this? I mean, not only do we have enemies who wanna stop us and ridicule us and now are threatening us, by the way, the second step of persecution, the first is ridicule and marginalizing, the second is threats. Now our people are becoming discouraged as well because it's very, very hard work. And it seems overwhelming. And so the people in Judah were saying that uh, the strength is giving out. And our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there on them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Well, that's true, they don't have a wall. You just sneak up on them and rush in and attack. They don't have a wall, they don't have an army. And so we're going to go kill them. That's what they said, that's the third step of persecution. And so we'll just kill them. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over wherever they warned them, wherever you turn, they're going to attack. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Again, what's he doing? He said, I took them family by family and put them in certain areas. And while some of the family was working, some of the family had spears and swords to protect them in case of an attack. So you have families protecting their families. He says, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. What does he say? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shield, bows, and armor. So it's really interesting to me that they thought they were gonna have a surprise attack and when they found out that he was prepared, they were continuing to rebuild, but they had armed people. It wasn't gonna be as easy as they thought. And Nehemiah attributes that to God, but that God had frustrated their plan. Then they were stymied. He says, but from that time on, half our people had weapons and half of them worked. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, definitely in the book of Nehemiah so back up in uh, verse 7 so when our enemies heard that uh, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against jerusalem look at verse 9 he says but we prayed to our god and posted a guard you could not describe a better marriage of prayer and preparation. I know in our last lesson, we talked about the idea that sometimes we think we pray, sometimes we think we prepare, but we talked about those aren't mutually exclusive. And in fact, they don't even live in two different realms, that they, they should naturally go together, that we should be praying and we should be preparing for what God will do. But I love this, we, they, they faced danger and they said, so we prayed to God and we posted a guard and how many times in my life, how many times in your life, have you been about God's business, that you are, you are pursuing God, you are trying to live a faithful life, and difficulties come at you. And in fact, difficulties that seem overwhelming. I mean, wow, this certainly is overwhelming. You've got the armies of all the nations around you would like to kill you, and you're starting to be a little frustrated that, wow, can we really do this? I mean, it seems like everything is going against them. How many times would this be the best advice you could ever get? It says, pray a prayer and post a guard. Let me translate it as, turn this over to God and go prepare for what he will do. Just keep faithfully building the wall. And that's the beauty of this. This ends up, you're gonna find out in a few minutes, this didn't take very long. I mean, it's unbelievable, and you know why? They never stopped working one stone at a time. All of this, and we're not even through with the things they tried to do to to intimidate the Jews. All of these things going on, just like your life or my life, we've got, hey, I'm trying to do something good here, and all of these things are happening, and what do they do? Pick up a brick, put it in the wall. Say a prayer, post a guard. They just keep moving forward, and God blesses that in amazing ways. But I really want you to remember this this idea of prayer and preparation, and use them together. Prayer and effort are not enemies. They should go together. So they said a prayer, they posted a guard. Well, when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and all the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, though up to that time we don't have any gates yet, he says, they sent me a message. So now they realize that they're not gonna be able to defeat them militarily, So they decide, well, we're gonna use trickery. He says, come and let us meet together in one of the villages, but they were scheming to kill me. So I sent a messenger to them with this reply. I'm carrying on an important project and I can't spare the time to meet with you. So four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave the same answer. So they're like, well, I guess he's not that dumb to come meet with us because we're gonna kill him if we can get our hands on him so then they decide well if he won't come to us we will make him uh, we're going to put pressure from a different area watch what they do then the fifth time sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written an unsealed letter means somebody's read this and so what he's saying is is oh what i'm sending to you probably isn't private you know what, I'll bet it got back to Susa. Listen to what he says. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about yourself, that there is a king in Judah. I'm afraid this report will get back to the king, so you better come and talk this over with me. So what are they they doing at this point? They've obviously sent this message to Artaxerxes. And so now they're trying to smear him by publishing lies about him. Well, that's another form of persecution, isn't it? Is publishing lies or twisting the truth about them. And so Nehemiah responds and simply says, Uh, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are making this up out of your own head. I don't know about you, but about half the things I read in the media, I think this exact verse. You are making this up out of your own head. Well, it was definitely happening then, and they were trying to force him to the bargaining table, if you will. But Nehemiah is wise enough to know. This is not a hick. This is a very capable executive. Remember where he came from, from being the cupbearer to the king. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. In other words, he said, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to demoralize us every way they can. If they couldn't demoralize us by threatening to attack us and kill us and realize, wow, these people will not stop building this wall. Then they thought, well, we're gonna get you in trouble with the Persians and you know what the Persians could do. They'll probably come here and kill all of you. He says, I know what's happening here. They're trying to sap our will. That happens to us a lot too. As Christians in our modern world, as Christians in any era of history, is that the enemies of the cross of Christ would love nothing more than to sap our will to continue about God's business. But notice Nehemiah's response. This, if I have a second favorite verse, this is it. But Nehemiah prayed, Lord, strengthen my hands. I can't tell you, this is one of those little short prayers that you can say a lot is, Lord, strengthen my hands for the work in front of me. I just think it's a short, beautiful little prayer. So what does he say? He said, I know things aren't, don't look like they're going well. I know they're trying to intimidate us. I know they're playing on our tiredness and our fears, but Lord, strengthen our hands for the work in front of us. Powerful prayer, and they keep doing it. So one day I went to the house of Shemaiah. Now he's with Jews. And he said, let's meet in the house of God inside the temple and close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. What's he saying? Now we're not talking about their enemies, we're talking about paid Jews who have been paid money to, from the inside, subvert this work. And they're saying to him, it's a little hard to understand from the text, they're saying, listen, they're gonna kill you. You gotta be afraid for your life and we do not want you to die. You need to go hole up in the temple. Nehemiah won't do this. He said, but I said, should a man like me run away, or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. What's he saying is, look, I'm telling these people, do not be afraid, God is with us, keep building the wall, and I'm gonna go hide in the temple? He said, I understand what you're trying to do here. You're trying to subvert this from the inside. He says, I realized that God had not sent him, even though he was a prophet, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. I mean, just think about this. I mean, it's amazing the lengths that their enemies went to stop this and it's amazing to me to just fast forward 2,500 years to today and realize every single one of these techniques are still being used in our world to frustrate and stop God's work in our world. But Look what he says, he prays to God again, this is the second imprecatory prayer, God remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done and remember the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who've been trying to intimidate me. He said, okay, I'm not gonna punish them, but if you want to, that will be fine with me. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, don't forget this, but we're going to keep working. The other thing about Nehemiah, I mean, some of it is that he's a praying man. To me, if you take nothing out of this study except that, that is a great thing to take away. Praying women and praying men are so powerful in the kingdom of God. We need to be praying women and praying men. That's powerful. But the other thing is, to me, that he keeps focused on God's business. He doesn't get pulled away because of the intimidation, but he also doesn't get pulled away responding to the intimidation. I mean, he sends them the note, but he doesn't get sucked into revenge. He doesn't get sucked into big arguments with them. He is also stays on task. I admire that because it's really easy when people are trying to intimidate you or insult you or somehow uh, pull you away from what you're trying to do or criticizing or critiquing the good that you are doing. I feel this way a lot of time in social media when I see just ridiculous and unfair criticisms of Jesus Christ of his word, and I think to myself, you know, that just should not be allowed to stand. But the nice, the thing I like about Nehemiah is, he prays to God, but he doesn't spend much time on that. He just gets on about his business. That's been a great example to me, because I think that's as powerful a lesson today as it was in his time. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, In 52 days, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. So who are the tough guys now? And they lost their self-esteem because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. No more powerful statement than this. This should be said about everything we as a church do. I mean, all followers of Christ do is the enemies of the cross of Christ and the book of Colossians by the way talks about this says the same thing it says they are going to be discouraged when they realize that God has done this and so it's just amazing the flip-flop from we've got an army you don't we're going to kill you uh we're going to get you in trouble with the king of persia we're going to trick you we're going to pay your own prophets or preachers to tell you no god wants you to do this not what you think he wants to do we tried everything we could and then they realized listen normal people can't do this you cannot rebuild that wall in 52 days and you sure can't rebuild that wall in 52 days with us trying to stop you and so when they see it they go you know they, their god must be real and they were scared to death and that's the powerful thing about us we We reach for things that are way beyond our grasp, and we reach in faith, and every time God brings those things about, it is a testimony to the world that this work had been done with the help of their God. No better epitaph for any Christian church in the world than that. This work had been done with the help of their God. Well, let me show you what it looks like. I showed you, by the way, this... uh, picture on the right, what they did was they rebuilt this wall around kind of what you'd call the old city of Jerusalem. So it's not a trivial thing. This is not a very, it's not a tiny area. And then on the left, this is a section of Nehemiah's wall that you can still see today. And so it is a, what's called a stepped stone structure. And I just thought it would help you to see this. It's uh, it's not like, you know, you need a crane to lift these things up, but you look at that and you think about doing that for miles. That's pretty impressive in 52 days. But when I say stepped stone, what I mean is it's built like terraces. Goes up, back, up, back, up, back. Very common way to build walls at that time. And sure enough, that is a piece of Nehemiah's wall, uh, of the wall that was built at that time that's exposed and you can still see in Jerusalem today. And so in 52 days, they were able to do that. So as you think about this, and I hope you do think about this a little bit, and just let some of the lessons soak in. I mean, everything from prayer and preparation are partners. Oh, wow, that, that's alliterative, isn't it? But prayer and preparation go together, and let's do that in our lives. Let's pray and let's prepare. Let's not think about it's either me or God. Let's think about it's me about God's business, and he is paving the way. Let's think about prayer and preparation going together. Let's think about being women and men of prayer. Let's think about being focused on God's work despite all of the circumstances that tend to want to sap our will uh, to be about his business. There are just so many lessons here. There is nothing that God cannot accomplish, nothing that he cannot accomplish through his faithful servants. And if we will be faithful, he will accomplish great things. It's been a great study. Glad you've kind of gone through it with us. And you've now, through the course of these two, gone from 1,000 BC to about roughly 400 BC. And this is the historical period of uh, the second part of the Old Testament. And from this time on, the Jews come back There's a small gathering of Jews there, and now that Jerusalem can be inhabited, more and more of them come back, and you fast forward 400 years, and Jesus enters this world with the Jews back in the land of Israel. Well, our next series, what will we do next? Starting next week, we're going to be streaming Uh, since we're still in a time where we can't meet in person, we're gonna be streaming a study that I have done before, but there'll be some discussion questions on the book of Revelation. And so for the next 10 weeks, we're gonna walk through the New Testament book of Revelation. It's been a long time since we've looked into it. I wanna look at several different points of view on the book of Revelation, and I wanna talk especially about the practical applications. Why the book of Revelation? I don't know, just something apocalyptic seemed to be right about this time of global pandemic. Plus, I also wanna get you ready for the November elections. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate you being here.